0: Is Maureen Milliken and this is Rebecca Milliken and this is Crime and Stuff, the podcast you would do if you had nothing better to do. And this is our second episode using Zoom. It's so record. much fun, except for I had my flu shot and my COVID booster yesterday. So I was okay last night. I was just a little tired and then I was pretty okay most of the day. I was a little tired and then I started getting worse and worse. I feel okay now. So just, are, you,
1: are you telling me that you're going to fall asleep during my story tonight? I could
0: never fall asleep when you're talking.
1: <laughs> it's so
0: <laughs> riveting. Um, I have a slight temperature so I'll be muting if I have to cough. It's. Weird. I have a temperature too. It's 98.6.
1: <laughs> you're so funny.
0: <laughs> and then I had to go to this thing tonight from 4 30 to 6 30, which I did not drink at. Well, what kind of thing? It was for the NKBA, which is National Kitchen and Bath Association. It was a mixer.
1: And this weekend, speaking Mm -hmm. of we're going to Crime Bake. We are, I will
0: probably drink.
1: New England Crime Bake, right? Last year it was virtual, but I've been going every year since 2007 and I'm wicked looking forward to it. And I think the first year I went was 2005. 15, 15. when Elizabeth George was the special guest. And I'm on a panel this year.
0: Yay. I told somebody about you and they pretended they would remember your name. Oh, that's
1: great. Was this somebody who would be relevant? Some lady.
0: Oh no! You it mean told some... her to buy one of my books? Or I just told her what, that my sister her... was an author, and she's like, "Oh, has she published any books?" And I'm like, "Yes, three. Oh, yeah. what's her name? It was at this thing I was at, and she—I didn't, I didn't really say publish it like
1: that. them. Actually, my publisher
0: did. Yes, I know. But anyways, so should, you have an update. update.
1: You'll all be happy to know that, despite the odds—in other words, the fact that no journalist seems to be covering news in Maine anymore that there was an update to the bodies in the landfill main mini we we brought you two episodes ago episode that was very intriguing 110 and it gets maybe more it's hard to say Hmm. but as we reported in episode 110 and no one else did by the way since they didn't seem to think finding out who the victims were was important. Jessica Lurvy, 28, of Laconia, New Hampshire, whose body was found in the Belmont, New Hampshire dump slash landfill, whatever you want to call it, on September 9th, had a boyfriend, Michael Schofield, 29, who is the father of her two children. I got that from her obituary, and when I first did Armini, I reported that. Well, it turns out that the body found in the Lewiston, Maine landfill on September 21st was Schofield, the boyfriend... Ah. Of the woman it's found so in the Belmont one. Weird. And for those of you unfamiliar with how we get rid of our rubbish in rubbish. the U.S., and particularly New England, these like quote-unquote landfills, which hopefully are going out of style, <laughs> you know, big trucks bring giant loads of garbage and dump them. And then sooner or later they cover it over. And and these two landfills are about two and a half hours or two hours away from each other, depending on how you get there. When the Laconia Sun reported November 4th that the body in the Lewiston landfill was Michael Schofield, investigators were still waiting for the final results of Lurvie's autopsy to determine how she died. Both dumps are operated by Casella Waste Systems, which is a huge waste hauling company in northern New England. The Laconia Sun reported that, that the main Chief Medical Examiner said Schofield's cause of death had not yet been determined. Senior New Hampshire Assistant Attorney General Peter Hinckley said he's waiting for Lurvie's autopsy report <laughs> before he talks more about her death. Well, Lurvie's death, that's the woman who was found in Belmont, New Hampshire, is considered untimely and is still being investigated by Belmont, New Hampshire police and the New Hampshire Attorney General's office, Hinkley, the AG, said there was no reason to call her death suspicious, and Lewiston police apparently aren't commenting. If I had hmm. to guess, I'd say however they died, they somehow ended up in dumpsters or something and that Casella then picked up and dumped them at the two different sites. The initial stories in September said Maine State Police found Schofield's body, the one in Lewiston, because of a tip, which would mean someone knew he would be found in the landfill and told police that. My Uh. old newspaper, the New Hampshire Union Leader, reported back then that Lurvie's body arrived in the Belmont, New Hampshire landfill, quote, among the contents of a disposal truck and had been discovered when the contents were being removed and separated. Uh. They got that from the New Hampshire Attorney General's office. New Hampshire Deputy Chief Medical Examiner Mitchell Weinberg did an autopsy, but I guess they're doing a second one or further testing or something. I'm not sure why it's taken so long. It's been more than a month. Her obituary appeared in September. It said she died suddenly, September 8th, and noted her two kids and her quote-unquote fiancé, Schofield. And as I said at the time, no one seems to have done a story on who she was, how she may have ended up in the landfill or anything, or even looked at her obituary, except for me. And at the time, we talked about her and her boyfriend, Schofield, who were both charged with criminal trespass, resisting arrest, and breach of bail back in June. They were both listed as transient at the Mm. time. and which, again, I'm bringing this up not to label them, but to point out that there are ways, I guess, they could have ended up in dumpsters and in landfills. But I can't imagine that they both died of natural causes and somehow ended up in dumpsters and in separate landfills. I mean, it's I so guess they're weird. It's very odd. Obviously there's more to it than we know. I'm not sure what we'll find out because in the old days, as I said last time, that something newspapers would have been all over. And this time nobody even bothered to read her obituary and put the information in a story except me. I know. And I'm not saying that to blow my own horn. I'm just saying it's just an obvious thing to do. And that's, it's such a weird story it's a sad it's a sad story too because obviously their lives somehow weren't going well and something happened and i'm not sure how police can say it's not suspicious when they won't even say how she died i know i mean it could have been they could have od'd or something but they somehow but then how did
0: they end up in the dumpster getting picked
1: up like garbage
0: yeah, unless yeah, unless they were in a dumpster unless they were
1: in a dumpster and that's how they died but if they were both in the same dumpster it seems like they both would have gone to the same landfill I know oh. and how did police get a tip that I, Schofield was exactly. in Lewiston unless it was somebody from the landfill who saw him and reported it but then you'd think that they would say somebody at the landfill saw him like they did in Belmont unless Lewiston police and the main state police are just playing their cards close to their vest and New Hampshire isn't
0: I don't know it's just weird that it's hardly reported either when two bodies are found in in landfills i know and then they turn out to be first boyfriend and girlfriend boyfriend and girlfriend and they're uh, what a couple hundred miles apart
1: yeah well not that many it's a two to two and a half hour drive okay but only because of the terrain the fact that the mountains or in between them you have to go down 95 to go up or you know whatever yeah exactly
0: as um, the crow flies it's not that far
1: yeah but anyway so that's that
0: okay do you have any other updates well i have my story. Your story, which is a big update. It oh, was, oh, before ahead. you start, I just wanted to mention something that has nothing to do with anything we were talking about. Okay. But I wondered if anyone, if you or anyone had seen this story that's going to give me nightmares now that was on the news tonight about some building that's 1300 feet in the air and has a staircase on it on the outside. And these people were climbing it and they showed it. And I literally got chills well i've been getting chills i I
1: need more information why is there a staircase on the outside of the building i
0: don't know why there's a staircase but people can pay 185 dollars and they put like a bungee cord or whatever Uh, on them uh, and they can walk up the staircase uh, if someone knows more they can they can comment on our i assume
1: this is like in dubai or somewhere not in the united uh, states i'm not super
0: afraid of heights just thinking uh, about being that high in the air and seeing people walking up and the, on the top of this building it was very upsetting but i'm gonna post that video if i can find it on facebook
1: okay yeah yeah do that yeah i'm I mean, gonna write myself a note right now. i didn't used to be afraid of heights but i definitely am now and i don't I didn't know why
0: used to i don't i don't call it i get like yeah i don't call it
1: being afraid of heights necessarily i call it just being averse to. you feel like gravity is just gonna pull you over you feel like you're gonna go flying
0: off the top of something. right
1: but anyway i that the note, there's another thing to be afraid of and that's fire We're just so afraid of
0: everything oh sorry
1: yeah be little you know make fun people died people no died. i'm not making fun okay. of that okay go ahead okay in october the cbs news show and if you couldn't hear well i put that in air quotes 48 hours aired an episode about rhode island's 2003 station nightclub fire with the totally misleading title The station nightclub fire. Who's responsible? (laughs) We feature this fire in which 100 people died in Mm. episode 72, which also featured the 1942 Coconut Grove fire in Boston that killed 492 people and how the lessons from that fire didn't seem to be learned well enough. This was originally going to be an update. But when I was doing the update, I got so pissed off, it became a full-blown episode. Ooh, This episode, (laughs) it isn't a blow-by-blow account of the fire. I suggest you listen to episode 72, which dropped January 2nd, 2020, for that. And the episode also shows how the lessons, as I said, of the Coconut Grove 59 years before weren't really learned. But this episode does take a deeper look at the question 48 Hours Asked, but did a shitty job of answering who's responsible in fact 48 hours simply allowed the owners of the club to get away with the same finger pointing they engaged in right after the fire in some ways we'll never know all the details of who's responsible Rhode Island being Rhode Island there are probably a lot of backroom deals that we'll never be aware of that isn't a criticism it's just a statement of fact and I certainly can't go into all the ins and outs of the fire in this episode. But what I'm going to do tonight is look at the publicly known aspects, what happened and how the focus has been misdirected in a lot of ways, most recently in big ways by 48 hours. The 48 hour show probably set back people's accurate knowledge of what happened. And I'll add that maybe a decade or more ago, 48 hours used to be pretty good. But in recent years, it's gotten really superficial. And I don't plan on watching any more episodes, unless I have to for like a show like this <laughs> i really became disenchanted not that i ever was totally enchanted um a couple of years ago i can't remember exactly when it was when the anchor man or narrator or whatever you want to call That's him name. peter yeah. van zandt yes had a totally gratuitous ambush of a woman at her workplace mm-hmm. she may or may not have been responsible for murder decades before mm-hmm. and the show focused a lot more on the sensationalistic ambush of the woman than on what happened, and you really felt for her, even if she was involved in the murder, it was just startling how really unethical yeah that was. And made me uncomfortable, and it was unnecessary. and the show, and like now they have this really frenetic like five-minute teaser that practically tells you the whole story. And anyway, the episode of 48 Hours that aired in October about the station fire suffered from similar superficiality and some other major issues. Station nightclub owners, Jeff and Michael Dadarian, were featured as finally speaking out 18 years after the February 20th, 2003 fire. When narrator, and I'm not going to call them reporters, Jim Axelrod, asked them in the show, why now? They said they want to set the record straight. Yet, the show not only uncovers no new information, it actually leaves out major information. So it serves simply as a vehicle for the brothers to once again say they aren't responsible for the deaths of 100 people and horrific life-altering injuries to more than 200 more that happened that night a quick recap the station was a nightclub in west warwick rhode island the night of the fire the band great white it really wasn't the band great white it was like a modern iteration with a couple members jack russell and um some other people and some oh new i love guys. those little dogs sorry Uh, Jack Russell, oh, you know, I never even realized that. Anyway, they were playing. Because neighbors had complained about noise, the walls were covered with what turned out to be highly flammable and toxic polyurethane foam, which ignited immediately when Daniel Beakley, the band's road manager, set off pyrotechnics. It was the fourth deadliest public venue fire in the history of the United States, the first being the Iroquois Theater Fire in Chicago in 1903 that killed 602 people. Ah the second the coconut grove featured in episode 72 in november 1942 which as i said 492 people died oh my god the third was the rhythm club in natchez mississippi in 1940 where 207 people died Mm. so it would seem like fires like that were things of the past until 2003 when the station fire happened so i said before the station fire killed 100 injured about 230, and traumatized probably all of the at least 462 people who were in the building, as well as their families, friends, and many other people. It resulted in $176 billion paid out in dozens of lawsuits over the years, and those paid out ranged from the Dedarian Brothers, who owned the club, Great White, Beer Company, Anheuser-Busch, the broadcasting company Clear Channel, Home Depot, a variety of companies that made... Soundproofing Foam, the company that sold the foam, and many, many oh. more. As I've said on many of our episodes, just like when you're writing a news story, the best place to go for information is a source directly from the event, not from people reporting on the source years later. In episode 72, I got some information from the report by the National Institute of Standards and Technology Investigation of the Fire. The NIST is a government agency that studies the technical aspects of why something happened, and I easily found that report online when I wrote episode 72, and easily found it again when I wrote this. The NIST report used computer modeling videos from the night of the fire, and even though that was before most people had video cell phones, ironically... Jeff Dadarian, who was a TV reporter and a videographer, were there because Jeff was doing a story on safety at clubs after a stampede. And uh. Uh, the E2 club, I think, in Chicago, excuse me if I'm wrong, killed a bunch of people. And he was doing a, you know, can it happen here? And he used his own club to film some B-roll. That film from the videographer Ended up being a major investigative tool, not only for the NIST, but a lot of other people. The NIST report looked at everything from the building's construction, occupancy, the emergency response to the behavior of people in the building when the fire broke out. I also use the Boston Globe and Providence Journal for this, particularly the Globe Accounts from the Time of the Fire. Got it on newspaper.com. The Projo isn't on newspapers.com, though. Most of the focus over the years has been on the pyrotechnics the band used that night and the highly flammable and toxic polyurethane foam the club used to soundproof its walls. Both of those were factors, and I'll talk about them, but there was a lot more to it than that. And the club was a tinderbox, both physically of construction and figuratively of bad decisions, just waiting for a fire to happen, even if it hadn't happened that night. The NIST study, which took two years to complete and came out in 2005, said that the three major factors leading to the massive loss of life that night were occupancy issues, especially as related to the um, exits, the hazardous mix of building contents, and the lack of fire suppression. Before I get to all that, I just want to point out that the first big flaw of the 48-hour show is that no one really bothered to find out why the Dederian brothers are going on now what one victim's father is calling a whitewash tour. Uh-huh. The Boston Globe, who interviewed them at the same time they were on, you know, the same weekend they were on 48 Hours, suggested it was to get ahead of the narrative as the 20th anniversary approaches, but since that is not for a year and four months, I don't think that's it. I haven't been able to find out either, but I'm not doing a slick national million dollar TV show about it that purports to get to the bottom of things. I think getting to the bottom includes not simply asking the brothers why they're seeking publicity after 18 years, but actually finding out why. Exactly, Jeff Dadarian, the more polished of the two brothers, as I said, he used to be a TV reporter, told 48 Hours, we wanted the full story to come out and that for people who want to come to their conclusion on what happened that night as their reason for finally talking. Mm -hmm. They gave a tearful, finger-pointing press conference two days after the fire and haven't talked to any local media since. But this wasn't the first time in 18 years they've talked about the fire. They did talk to Scott James, who wrote a book that came out last December about the fire. In fact, James was featured on the 48-hour show, so it's not beyond the realm of possibility. They're out there to help them sell books. James, a former TV news director, hired Jeff Tedarian for his first full-time reporting job in 1993 and worked with him for several years, according to the Providence Journal. And again, his book came out. It was almost a year ago, but with COVID, everything's a little off. All this is relevant because if they're pushing an agenda, it may mean something. And since they haven't talked publicly, since their tearful finger-pointing news conference a few days after the fire more than 18 years ago, and then to James for his book, 48 hours should have found out why. Jeff Dadarian said they want people to make up their own mind, but there's no way to do it after watching 48 Hours. Imagine if 48 Hours had just looked over the official investigative reports and asked the Dadarians about the stuff in them, particularly since they've been so media shy over the last two decades. yes. I'm only left to guess, however, that the reason 48 Hours got this coup of having them on was to let them guide the narrative or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that's a guess because when a show isn't transparent about why it handles news Mm -hmm. in a certain way, you're just left guessing. In fact, for instance, Jeff Dadarian says on the show that they'd been looking to sell the club and it actually had been sold right before the fire. True, they'd been looking to sell it and were in the process of selling it. Not true, it had been sold. The day of the fire, The potential new owners have filed papers with the state of Rhode Island indicating their intention to take over, but the deal wasn't finalized. This was reported in the Boston Globe February 26, 2003, and could have easily been checked by 48 hours. Now, that is a huge deal, and I'm not sure what Tadarian's point is unless it's just to, again, somehow deflect blame but it indicates that what the Dederians said on the show wasn't fact-checked, and no one had done intense enough homework to know when they were telling the truth and when they weren't. So that's the first thing that 48 Hours missed the boat on. Here's the rest of it.
0: So I just looked up that, sorry, while you were talking, I looked up that skyscraper, and it's actually in New York.
1: Oh, I don't know why I said Dubai. Because
0: <laughs> it seems like something, they always have tall buildings and stuff like that there, yeah. but whatever. And more money People than are know. crazy everywhere. I would I guess not so. no, I
1: But would anyway, die. we'll start
0: with the pyrotechnics. The
1: fire began when at 11.07 p.m. on February 20th, 2003, Daniel Beakley, the road manager for Great White, whose name I pronounced wrong all through Ooh, episode 72, oh I'm pretty sure, God. set off pyrotechnics as the band launched into their opening song, Desert Moon. The polyurethane foam that lined the walls around the stage and the ceiling immediately ignited and it quickly spread to the rest of the wood frame building. The Dedarians said then, and they say on 48 Hours Now, that they had no idea. No idea Great White was going to set off pyrotechnics. Jeff D'Adarian on 48 Hours said that the pyrotechnics weren't in the contract. And he points out contracts, you know, they specify everything, including, you know, no brown M&Ms implying that Great White's contract was that detailed. I'm sure there was nothing about M&Ms yeah, in their contract. And I think we know, and a lot of people would know what he was referring to, but a lot of people watching 48 Hours would probably think that they had in their contract no M&M. But Great White was known for pyrotechnics and had also gotten into trouble recently at the Stone Pony in Asbury Park, New Jersey, just a few days before the station show, because they set them off after the owner had supposedly either told them not to or wasn't aware they were going to. Mm-hmm. 48 Hours brings this up as a way to indict the band. Yet in the book, Killer Show by John Berilick, and this is not the book that's by Scott James that's talked about in the 48 Hours show. This is a book that came out several years ago about the fire. Berilick said he found that there were many cases close to when the fire happened that when asked not to use pyrotechnics, when Great White played, Beakley didn't use them. And how about this? The Boston Globe reported days after the fire that station stage manager Paul Vanner had warned the Dadarians in December, a couple months before the fire, that pyrotechnics used in shows were too dangerous and they shouldn't be used anymore. Quote, I told them, I don't know these guys from Expletive, which I'm going to guess is shit. He said, referring to bands in general, they are lighting fires in your club. Tomorrow they're gone. I can't guarantee safety in your club. That tells me the brothers should have been on high alert about pyrotechnics Uh and made sure that they had a policy about not having them. And if they had one, it was clear to bands and also to check as bands set up to make sure they weren't setting them up. There's something you can obviously see being set up, you know, they're not invisible. Well, it looks like no pyrotechnics were used in the weeks between when Venner said that to the Dedarians and when Great White used them, no one has ever said, we decided after Paul said that we weren't using pyrotechnics anymore and we made that clear to bands. So it's likely that there just weren't any bands using them that booked the club in those months. Otherwise, they would have brought it up. Hey, we have this no pyro policy. At the time, according to another Globe story that same day, Rhode Island required pyrotechnics to be set up by a licensed technician. And they also had to get a permit from the fire marshal. Licensed technicians for bigger bands that played in bigger venues, like the Providence Civic Center and the Worcester Centrum and arenas, people did to it as they were supposed to. It's done state by state. So for a lot of bands, it would have cost too much to have their own technician, and what you would have to do is hire somebody to set them up. A lot of bands used pyrotechnics at the time, and no one was checking whether they used a licensed technician or got a permit from the fire marshal. The Globe quoted industry experts saying that in some cases, club owners are willing to look the other way. The story says, like I said, that in clubs, it was general practice to ignore the rules. Uh-huh. Well, in the bigger venues like the, you know, Worcester Centrum or something where people like Bruce Springsteen were playing, the rules were followed. Not that Bruce has pyrotechnics. Uh-huh. Although I do
0: remember- He doesn't need him. He's hot as fire. I do,
1: I do remember that shortly after this happened in March of that year, we went to see him at the Providence yes, we did in Rhode Island. And I'll tell you, we checked to see where those exit signs were. It seems like in most of the clubs in New England that were using pyrotechnics, everybody just ignored the rules. I'm sure. And yes, you can blame the bands, but it's also up to the clubs to check. Like so many things, and as we mentioned in episode 72, when we talked about all the regulations passed after the Coconut Grove fire, you can pass all the rules you want, but if no one enforces them, they're shit. Banner said no one at the club knew the pyros were going to go up. When the pyros went off during the show, he said, who in hell is in charge of this? Now, I know I don't own a nightclub and all that shit, but it seems to me that if you're an owner, a stage manager, or anything else, you check the setup and make sure it complies to any rules you may have, so you're in charge of it. Like Vanner said, these guys are gone tomorrow. They have no stake in the club being safe or anything else. It's up to the club. Rev Tyler, a member of the band Love and Cry, told The Globe that they routinely use pyrotechnics at the station without having a license text set them up or getting the required permit. He said it was like setting up a drum kit, and all he wanted to know before a show was where they were and when they were going to go off. He -hmm. said his band would tell clubs that they were using them, and since they played at the station a lot, I assume that meant the station too, and he said that clubs would generally say it's okay, but no one ever said anything about rules regarding technicians or permits, he said. A fire marshal in the story in the Boston Globe, this was back in February 2003, said it's up to the bands to know that stuff, but it's also up to the clubs to make sure they know it, they know what they're supposed to do, and that they've done it. So it doesn't really matter whether the pyrotechnics were in the contract that Great White had with the station, it matters what the conversation was. While the Deterians say they had no idea, they should have had an idea. And like I said, since bands routinely use pyrotechnics in the club, this wasn't anything new to them. In fact, right after the Dedarians bought the club in 2000, three years before, Heavy Metal Band, it's either Wasp or WASP, i I'm not sure. <laughs> which was managed by Beakley, the guy who was managing um, Great White at the time of the fire, used pyrotechnics. Beakley flipped a switch that caused lead singer Blackie Lawless's <laughs> crotch to erupt with showering sparks. Which I also mentioned in episode 72, but I I had to bring it. So the whole who's to blame for the pyrotechnics falls not only on the band, as I said, but also on the club that should have been more vigilant. Not only were bands skirting the rules, but no one at the station was asking about them either. And I have to wonder if Great White did mention the Pyros. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But if they had, if anyone from the club would have said, no, don't use them. They're dangerous. Or would have just let them go ahead and use them. Like countless bands had done in the three years that they owned the club. This is something 48 Hours could have asked about instead of leaving it hanging there as if though it was a he said, he said situation, which we know are never really cut and dried. And the 48 Hours implication is that it was probably the band's fault, the way they left it on the show. And I should have mentioned this earlier, but Beakley, the guy who set them off, the road manager, is the only person in this whole tragic mess since that first night who's taken any responsibility. Mm. Three years after the fire, he pleaded guilty to 100 counts of involuntary manslaughter. Oh, God and was sentenced to four years in prison, serving 22 months. His plea deal was against the advice of his lawyers, as was his decision to write personal letters to the families of every person who died in the fire. His light sentence angered a lot of survivors and the families of the victims, but his lawyer, Thomas Brody, pointed out, he's the only man to say, I apologize. Dan Beakley committed a misdemeanor that night without any way of knowing that the stage had been set for what the attorney general is calling the perfect storm. Asked if he wanted to say anything when he was sentenced, Beakley said, Since the fire, I've wanted to tell the victims and their families how truly sorry I am for what happened that night and the part I had in it. I never wanted anyone to be hurt in any way. I never imagined that anyone ever would be. I know how this tragedy has devastated me, but I can only begin to understand what the people who lost loved ones have endured. I don't know that I'll ever forgive myself for what happened that night, so I can't expect anyone else to. Aww. I can only pray that they understand that I would do anything to undo what happened that night and give them back their loved ones. I'm so sorry for what I've done and I don't want to cause any more pain. I will never forget that night, and I will never forget the people that were hurt by it. I'm so sorry. Contrast that to the Dedarians. Even on 48 hours wouldn't take any responsibility. Though Michael did end up getting a similar sentence to Beakley, and we'll talk more about that later. Now, let's talk about occupancy. Probably the biggest omission on the 48-hour show, aside from the fact that they didn't nail down why the Dadarians are speaking out right now, is that they never mentioned the club was over capacity that night. Capacity had been sent at 404 people by the fire marshal, something that already was considered too high for the space, original word after the fire was that it had been 350 or so if the pool tables were removed but that figure changed later to 258 with the pool tables there 404 if they were gone but it was very hard for anybody to nail down uh. after the fire and you'll find out why in a little while but anyway uh-huh. the Dedarians advertised the band's agents in the u.s talent buyer's guide that the occupancy limit was 550 <laughs> obviously way out of whack with any allowances The Providence Journal has determined that there were at least 462 people in the club that night. Ah. Well, some people dispute the Projo's findings, that just shows a misunderstanding of how news gathering works. I mean, real news gathering. They did extensive record searches to figure that out, and they don't print that number lightly. The Providence (sighs) Journal supports its number of occupants with extensive notes to source how it determined each of those 462 people were there. The Rhode Island Attorney General puts the number at 458, though it's not clear how they arrived at the number. People who dispute the Providence Journal's number usually say things like, you could tell from the camera footage there weren't that many people there, or that many tickets weren't sold, both of which are bullshit arguments. Even if the number is disputed, Jim Axelrod on 48 Hours should have asked the Dadarians about the occupancy. The number was never mentioned on the show. They were never asked, even though it's been cited in official investigations of the fire, including the NIST report, as one of the reasons the fire was so deadly. Not to bring it up on the show is not only really bad reporting, but it makes you wonder about the rest of the narrative on the show and what else 48 Hours may be leaving out. Did you have a question? I
0: just wonder what they actually, which I'm sure you're going to tell me, but what they actually did talk about on this show. Like, it sounds like they left out a lot of Um, important information.
1: The first, I would say, half hour was pretty good. They talked to some victims of the fire, what happened, what their experience has been. And it wasn't a total blowjob for the Dadarians, but it ended up being one because it allowed them to get away with so much although it's not happy to
0: answer any difficult right i would recommend
1: questions. watching it to see what the victims have to say but it was billed as what really happened so it has a narrative of the fire and some of what the victims have to say in um rhode island attorney general patrick lynch but the Didarian's part the two people who haven't spoken except for in that book <laughs> you know that was supposed to be the big selling point so if you're really familiar with the fire like i am There was nothing new, and it was just frustrating. Anyway, the Dadarians had paid for a fire detail to be on hand the night of big shows, but West Warwick town records show that in April 2001, they stopped doing that, and the town never followed up. I don't know if that was a requirement or just something they were doing, but in any case, they stopped. The NIST report cites that one of the major three reasons so many people died is the exits weren't adequate for the crowded club, that occupancy should have been a lot lower. This study, which is so precise that it rejects calling the stage a stage and says it's instead more accurately a platform, Mm. did a very, and I'm just saying that to show you how precise the study was, Mm -hmm. it's like 250 something pages long, did a very in-depth study of how occupancy works with exits. It had some cool diagrams too, and it used all these computer simulations to show where people were and Mm. where they went and, and how those people would interact with exits depending on where they were what the heat and flames and toxic gases were like and they're part of the club at any moment and it was pretty cool. Ugh. Just like with the coconut grove fire almost 60 mm. years earlier, only a few people got out unscathed before people started jamming the few exits mm. causing a pile up that made it impossible to get out. The only people who who lived to get out or at least to get near enough to an opening to stick their head out and breathe until somebody pulled them out for within 90 seconds of the fire starting, according oh, to the investigation. My God. Anybody who was still in there after 90 seconds died. The National Institute of Standards and Technology report also includes a police diagram of where the bodies were found in the building. And it's kind of sad. There were no doors at all in the back where the office and the bathrooms and stuff were. There were like three bodies in the bathroom and a couple in the office. It's like people were trying to find an exit and um, couldn't. But an astounding 31 people were found backed up in the foyer leading to the main entrance. Another 18 were around the corner from it where there's like this false wall set up because the main entrance, you go through double doors and then there's this narrow foyer and then a single door. And so on either side of those walls on the foyer, you know, you had to go around them to get to the single door uh-huh. to get into the foyer to go out the entrance. So those 18 people around the corner probably got jammed into the corner and it was dark because all the lights went out. They couldn't see and they couldn't get to the entrance. And the fact that so many people got jammed up at entrances... That's why occupancy matters. Mm-hmm. There are, people have to be able to get through the crowd and get out and get to the doors when there's an emergency. That report even has did a computer simulation of how long it would pe- take people to get out if the lights were on and there was no fire. And I can't remember how it was, but it was like more than two minutes. Mm. The report goes deeply into human behavior in an emergency like this including that people tend to go toward the exit they came in and more. And that brings us to egress, 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 egress. There were four exits to the building, but that doesn't mean there were four obvious exits that people could get in and out of. There was the main one, which I've already mentioned, which I said was at the end of a foyer accessed by a single door. And that door opened in to the club rather than, out. then there was one by the bar kind of across the building from where the stage was one off the kitchen that wasn't available to patrons. And that was hard to find and one next to the stage, the door by the stage through which the band and a handful of other people were able to escape before the building was before the door itself actually was engulfed in flames, opened inward. Mm. The fire marshal had told the dadarians to replace it several times with one that opened out as required by fire code. But every time he went back to inspect the inward opening door was back up. In November 2002, he was pissed that they hadn't done it and noted it in his report. On 48 Hours, Jeff Darien said that they took the door down when they were supposed to, but when they had a loud band, they put it back up to stifle noise during loud concerts. Maureen says it doesn't matter why you put it <laughs> up. It wasn't supposed to be up. No shit. It's like he thinks saying, yeah, we had it there to keep the noise down. Because people didn't like the noise. So what were we supposed to do? Is a defense, but it's not. The door isn't supposed to open in, period. Granted, it seemed to work the night of the fire, even though it opened in because the band had used it all day to bring their stuff in and were able to get out. And the story has it that there was a bouncer who wouldn't let people go out at first and said it was only for the band. But if the, if that happened, I think he didn't know how bad the fire was going to be. But within a minute, if it was engulfed in flame. Nobody could use it anyway because it was covered with the polyurethane. Oh God! If it hadn't been yeah. engulfed in flames, it probably would have ended up causing another pileup.
0: Yeah, because it might have slammed shut anyway. Right. And-
1: well, the one member of the band who died, Ty, um, uh, I can't remember his last name, I didn't write it down, actually got out but went back in to get his guitar and um, never got back out again. But inward opening doors are forbidden because it was learned very tragically in the Coconut Grove fire that people pile up against doors and back nobody life. can get out. The NIST report found that maybe a dozen people did make it out that door before it was engulfed in flame. And as I said before, the main door too was a problem. Well, the one leading directly outside was a double door that opened out with panic hardware, which are those big metal bars on doors that when you push against them, the door opens. Yes. There was that single interior door that opened in, and you had to get through it to get to the double door. The kitchen door, as I said, was hard to find and not accessible to customers. The door in the bar way across the building from the stage, there was the stage and the dance floor where people were standing to watch the band. And then there was a bar, a horseshoe bar, just like in the Coconut Grove. And then beyond that was the other door. If you had just gotten there to go see the band, you may not have known it was there. And it had an issue with the exit light not always going. Huh. specific findings of the nist report include that the rate of egress from the main entrance at the front of the building was limited by the single door inside the foyer between 56 and 66 percent of the occupants appear to have attempted to leave through the single main huh. entrance in the front many were unsuccessful about a minute into the fire a crowd crush occurred in the front vestibule uh which almost entirely disrupted the flow through the front, according to the report. The one picture I remember from that night is people just piled up in that door and people trying to pull them out. Because then what happened, it got so crushed that even though the front door was working, a couple people fell and got slammed and then people piled up on top and couldn't get by them. The main area of the nightclub around the platform or the stage, was open with very few chairs, stools, or tables consistent with a festival seating arrangement. Uh The NIST found no evidence of a written emergency action plan, a written fire prevention plan, or employee training to assist safe and orderly evacuation. And as I said before, the Daddarians used a fire detail for large shows but stopped in April 2001, presumably because of money. These issues with the exits, including the fact that exit signs over the doors didn't always work, Had been cited by inspectors of the past and was all in the NIST report as a major reason for loss of life, but not mentioned at all on 48 Hours. (laughs) Sprinklers, an inadequate capability to suppress the fire during its early stage of growth, was another direct contributor to the large loss of life. 48 Hours, didn't mention this at all in the interview part, at the very end of the show when it was ending, and, and sometimes they have words on the screen, They had the words that said at the time of the station fire, older clubs in Rhode Island weren't required to have sprinklers and that the law has now changed. And that's all they said in the entire show about sprinklers. Uh. A law requiring sprinklers in venues that had more than 150 people was passed in Rhode Island in 2002, and the building was grandfathered, meaning it didn't have to have sprinklers. Uh. Which doesn't mean they couldn't have put them in. It would have cost the Dedarians $39,000. It would have been nice for 48 hours to ask them why they didn't put in sprinklers. Instead, the show just had that thing at the end. Uh, you know, they didn't have to have them and never made that an issue. It turns out Michael Dadarian was in deep debt. He was going through a divorce. He'd mortgaged his home to buy the club. But the brothers were in the process, as I said, of selling it at the time of his divorce because of his money issues. One of the people investigating the fire... In two thousand three, told the Boston Globe, "You have to look at things like this to determine why people are making the decisions they make." Mm. And it, he means Michael D'Addario's yes. death. And I want to point out that the brothers didn't actually own the building, but they leased it. They owned the nightclub business itself, but there was a clause in their lease that said improvements related to the business were up to them, and they held any liability. The NIST report said that two sprinkler heads over the stage would have almost Im- immediately put out the fire. Wow just two sprinkler heads, because what happened is that while the polyurethane foam was highly flammable, it burned quickly. And so we get to building materials. As far as building materials are concerned, one of the three major reasons for the fire being so deadly, the soundproofing foam is the big issue publicly. And it's what people always talk about it. And 48 hours certainly makes a lot of hay about it. The Dedarians said they knew nothing, nothing about the foam being a fire hazard. Oh, and they blame the fire marshal, Dennis LaRoque, who didn't notice it in his inspections, as well as American Foam Company, who they bought it from. The Dedarians throw the fire inspector under the bus, as many have done over the years, for not doing the proper test, which involves holding a match to a piece of the foam to see if it's fire retardant. And yes, he is to blame for not doing that. But they're the ones who put it up. And 48 Hours doesn't really hold them to the fire, on this issue
0: ooh,
1: also people kind of mocked him because he said he didn't notice the foam but what you rarely read is that it was painted black like the walls and had glitter on it so even though it was like that egg crate kind of foam and you're in a dark place and it you know it didn't scream um, foam. another issue rarely mentioned and surely not mentioned on 48 hours is that the building was entirely made of wood And while the foam covered the area around the stage, much of the building also had wood paneling. There was no fire barrier between the foam and the walls, which were largely wood, and some also gypsum. Another building violation, not having the fire barrier between the foam and the walls. The NIST report said if it had just been the foam without the huge combination of other easily flammable materials that weren't protected, the fire would have burned out quickly and the building wouldn't have become engulfed. So that's a really good case for the brothers being fire aware, including stressing no pyrotechnics and having sprinklers. If lip, your building a tinder is box. this tinder box, and 48 Hours surely could have asked them about that. This isn't to say the mm-hmm. foam isn't an issue. It obviously was, since it's what caught fire and caught everything else on fire. And as we know, flames aren't the only issue in a building fire. The toxic fumes from the foam, mm-hmm. as well as carpeting, paint, and more, also rendered many people unconscious very fast. The lights <sighs> went out. The building filled with a giant black toxic cloud. I can't
0: imagine.
1: Temperatures reached higher than 600 Fahrenheit Fahrenheit in less than a minute and a half of the fire starting in some parts of the building. And I don't have to tell you, those are not survivable temperatures. One of the women on the 48-hour show, Linda Saran, whose arms are just like pebbled with scarring, says she literally baked. She's literally baking in the heat. BU Today, Boston University's newspaper, later wrote about many of those who didn't get out. Quote, they succumbed to the combined efforts of a thousand degree heat, falling debris, and carbon monoxide and hydrogen cyanide from a lethal burning sandwich of polyethylene and polyurethane foam. Others suffocated in a pyramid of bodies by the front door. God. God. The NIST report says that the foam burned out quickly, and I know I already mentioned that, but not so fast that it didn't ignite the wood paneling underneath and next to it. The wood paneling contained more than 95% of the fuel load of the fire, according to the NIST. So while the polyurethane was like the wick, the fuel load was in the wood. That kept it going. Right. Right. It says most of the polyurethane foam was consumed within about two minutes after ignition. And the fire transitioned at that time to a a wood frame building fire. And as I said, the foam obviously is a big focus. Neighbor to the club, Barry Warner, who worked for American Foam Company, had complained about noise to the previous owners. Once the Dedarians bought the club, the town told them it would take away their license if they didn't do something about the noise. On the show, of course, the Dedarians made it sound like they were proactive and they went to talk to this guy and the neighbors, but actually the town had threatened to take away their license. The brothers visited Barry Warner because he was one of the major complainers about noise and according to a 2003 affidavit after the fire, offered him an air conditioner. I assumed <laughs> to drown out the noise. <laughs> but since he worked for American Foam, he said his company could set them up with some soundproofing. The brothers ordered, quote-unquote, sound foam, according to documents from the time. Well, they say now that that shows they thought they were getting official soundproofing foam. It isn't really what their intention was. It was all about cutting corners. The thing about American Foam Company is it didn't even sell soundproofing foam. It sold packing foam. The foam used on the walls cost the Dedarians $575, half the price that fire retardant foam would have cost. (laughs) The owner of American Foam told the Boston Globe in March 2003 that the brothers had asked for, quote, the cheapest foam Mm. the company had to offer. So they knew the foam wasn't fire retardant or just knew they were getting something cheap in any case. 48 Hours could have easily have found that out and asked them about it. There has been much finger pointing at the fire inspector for not noting the foam on the walls, which, as I said, was painted black with glitter on it, but no finger pointing at the guys who cut costs by having non-fire retardant foam installed, asking for the cheapest foam. Warner said he never told the Dedarians the foam was flammable, but he also said they never asked. That all may be true. But again, they wanted the cheapest and they didn't seem concerned about safety or fire hazard. Also, rarely reported, they were supposed to get a building permit and get it inspected when they installed the foam. That's a building requirement of Rhode Island. And they didn't do that. So they could have easily, should have easily found out it was flammable if they did get their building permit and have the foam inspected. And it's a mystery why they didn't follow the state building code, that require them to do that. Their lawyer did point out at the time that the foam quote, was never doubted by the Dedarians as a safe and legitimate material for soundproofing their nightclub, unquote. But as I said, there's no record of them ever applying for or getting a permit to install the phone. That way, they would have ensured it wasn't safe. I'm not sure how the lawyer could say they were assured it was safe when they didn't go through the basic. The lawyer for the building's owner, Triton Realty Limited Partnership, which again leased it to the Dedarians. told the globe right after the fire they'd never been told about any foam being added either and while the dadarians were responsible for making renovations related to the business they were supposed to tell the owner what they were doing so yes the fire inspector every year should have checked the foam to see if it was flammable but the Dedarians should have gotten a permit to install it in the first place had it inspected by a building inspector in the first place and there's no record they did that and also told their landlord they were putting it in, and they didn't do that either. There are records of other things. The NIST was able to get records of other work and permits going back to when the building first went up in 1946, although some of that is spotty, and we'll get to that later. 48 Hours makes a lot of hay about the fact that Warner, a week after the fire, sent an anonymous eight-page fax to investigators blasting American Foam Company for not adequately training employees about their foam. I just call that a a cover your ass move. Exactly. But the show made a big deal about it, as do the Dadarians, about how this wasn't brought up to the grand jury that later indicted them. Narrator Jim Axelrod asks then Rhode Island Attorney General Patrick Lynch why it wasn't brought up to the grand jury. Lynch looks a little flummoxed, then says if the Dedarians wanted everything to come out back then, they should have gone to trial instead of going for a plea deal. The brothers use the old time-honored excuse that they didn't go to trial because they didn't want to make all the families endure going through it again. But a lot of the surviving victims and and the families of those who died interviewed on the show and in other places over the years, said that they wanted a trial because they felt like everything wasn't going out and the Dedarians weren't talking publicly. Lynch, the former AG, or even the narrator Axelrod also could have pointed out that a grand jury proceeding is designed to determine if there's enough evidence to indict someone to bring charges. It's presented by the state and it's evidence against the person presented by the state and exculpatory evidence isn't used since they're presenting the evidence that would determine someone's guilt. It's not a trial and an indictment isn't a conviction. Most cub reporters know this, or at least used to, and that's a major reason why that fax wouldn't have been brought up when the Dedarian's case went before a grand jury. But 48 Hours misses the opportunity to inform people about this basic fact of the justice system. My guess, the reason Lynch didn't say it is maybe he just thought it was an obvious thing. He looks very confused at first when 48 Hours asks. Warner the neighbor told the Providence Journal last month after the 48 Hours episode aired that he wished it had gone to trial so he could have told the full story. He said, including the information about the facts was, quote unquote, complicated, and he would have liked to have a chance to get more information out. He said nobody's quite gotten it right, and he said 48 Hours sure did It. In any oh. case, American Foam cut and sold Foam, but they didn't make it. Others manufactured it, and in 2008, a bunch of foam companies settled for $30 million for the victims, including Carthage, Missouri-based Leggett & Platt, Baltimore Vase, William T. Burnett and & Company, and others. American Foam offered the victims $3.6 million, and that was all part of the $176 million in lawsuits. As far as record keeping goes, the NIST report also points out that inspections and record keeping practices are an integral part of a community fire safety program. But as far as the station went, they had trouble finding records of the initial building design. They couldn't find a current occupancy use permit. Uh. The history of inspections by the town of West Warwick related to the location of the fire extinguishers, non-functioning exit signs and emergency lights, broken panic hardware on an exit door, and the direction of and swing of exit doors also showed that when they were those were cited, and that wasn't just the Dedarians, it was year it was owners before them and stuff, it would call for a reinspection, but there was never any indication somebody reinspected. It would just say be checked off as okay later so it's not clear if anybody someone
0: pencil whipped it
1: right there were no town or state documents that mentioned the Darians put foam on the walls is required by the state as far as getting a permit for those as i said there were ones that showed other work there are also no findings that any band had ever applied for a pyrotechnic permit even though it was required and multiple bands said they used pyrotechnics at the club if you look at news stories after the fire it was very very hard to nail down the occupancy records the nist also points this out Much of the blame for that seems to be on Dennis LaRocque, the fire inspector who didn't notice the foam or test it, because the fire inspector also sets occupancy capacity. The reason he wasn't charged with anything for the fire is that Rhode Island law offers immunity to people in his position unless they acted with malice. Mm. David Kane, whose 18-year-old son Nicholas died in the fire told the Providence Journal after the 48-hour show aired that as far as he was concerned, Laroque's immunity went out the window when he consciously made the capacity of the club illegal. And that's mm-hmm. another issue that that's you don't, that's, that's an issue that's implied and n- nobody really comes out. I couldn't find any articles, the Providence Journal may have had one, that how was the capacity determined? What was his role? Again, you have him apparently setting it at a certain thing that the Darien's telling agents for bands that it was more than a hundred and whatever I know. people hire. It's possible someone looked into why the record keeping was so shoddy, but we'll probably never know. Rhode Island has a reputation for what can diplomatically be called deal making. Hmm. And my guess is that the inspection business relationship isn't immune <laughs> from that. Rhode Island is a state that politicians and everybody else, there's a long history of, and I know we have lovely Rhode Island listeners and I have friends who live in Rhode Island who I love and it's a wonderful state, but it's got a long history of corruption. And my guess would be this, the station maybe wasn't immune. In any case, while a lot of blame goes to Laroque. The fire inspector, and it's a long time narrative and and distracting tactic that 48 hours jumps on. The show didn't ask about any issues regarding the foam going on the wall, aside from the fact that LaRoque didn't know it was there or test it, including the obviously shoddy record keep- keeping by other government officials and the owners of the club. Or maybe <laughs> not shoddy record ke- keeping, but a wink wink nod nod about requirements. Which would involve complicity on both sides. The primary finding of the NIST report was that strict adherence to building model codes would have gone a long way toward preventing the fire or at least making it not deadly. And that's not just on that fire inspector's watch. Exactly. Building model codes are different in each state, just like everything else in the United States, but there are national recommendations many fire recommendations. When building codes are formed and changed, the construction industry and businesses often fight them because it means spending more money. As we can see from yeah. the station fire, being cheap costs lives. Mm-hmm. The NIST report had 10 major recommendations to keep something like this from happening again. And some things have changed, like a lot of states banned pyrotechnics at shows mm-hmm. after the fire. But as we learn from the Coconut Grove fire, after which a lot of new fire laws were put into place. The laws are only as good as people following them. For instance, panic hardware on doors and doors opening out came out of the coconut mm-hmm. grove. But we saw at the station that they couldn't tell if all the panic hardware on all four doors was working because of of the burning.
0: But exactly. there so have been.
1: Yes, but they have been cited in the past for the panic hardware not working. You know, you push one of those things and it gets stuck or whatever. Yeah. And there were some reports, the door from the bar that went outside, people at first had trouble getting it open. The NIST said some people reported that, other people reported they went right through it. My guess is the people reported having trouble getting it open were the first people who went to it and it took a while to get it open. And they estimate if it had opened right away, more lives would have been saved. In any case, the Darians who were responsible for their business ignored the basic rules. Jeff and Michael Dadarian originally pled not guilty to 200 counts, 100 oh, of one kind God. of manslaughter, and 100 of another kind. But in September 2006, struck the plea deal I mentioned before and pleaded no contest. Michael got the same sentence as Dan Beakley did, four years in prison and three years probation. He didn't get parole after 22 months like Beakley did, however, because he broke the rules, including um, work release rules that got him transferred from minimum security to medium security dumbass. and losing work release what privileges. What a dumbass. Yeah. Which just tells you Entitled. if you're looking for credibility. Part of their plea deal was that one of the brothers would serve time. And since Jeff was married with young kids, Michael was the one who served it. Hmm. Jeff was sentenced to three years probation and 500 hours of community service. The Dedarians were also fined a few years after the fire for violating employee safety rules and other things that 48 Hours kind of skims over. They mention it like in one sentence and don't really say what it is. And former Rhode Island Attorney General Pat Lynch says on the show they, quote, operated their business with a callous, utter disregard for their patrons and employees' safety. 48 Hours doesn't delve into why he says that or ask for specifics. Pat Lynch also says the fact that they're spinning the tale they are now is, quote, pathetic, disgusting, and unsettling. The biggest failure of the 48 Hours program, in the end, is the fact narrator Axelrod lets the Dedarians squiggle out of taking any blame. Sure, they feel guilty because people died, and they say that. And they obviously mean it. They obviously feel bad about it. And I mean, who wouldn't? But they don't feel guilty that it was their fault. Unlike Daniel Beakley, who played a part and says he did. Jeff DeDarion, at the end of the show, makes that point very clearly. When Axelrod asked him, do you take responsibility? He said, no, they feel bad, but they're not to blame. Dave Kane, who I mentioned earlier, his son Nicholas 18, died in the fire, Mm -hmm. told the Providence Journal last month that as he watched the show, he got angry. It, quote, was a sucker punch to everybody who lost somebody or who was burned, he said. This is how the DeDarians try to mitigate the impact they had and to move the blame to anybody else but themselves. They are trying to pull off a stunt here, and I hope nobody falls for it. Survival Linda Saran, the woman who um, was baking alive, uh, uh, probably says it best. She tells 48 Hours that taking responsibility goes a long way, and the brothers still haven't done that. Quote, they said they're sorry, but never once did they say, we screwed up. Uh, and so that is my answer to who's responsible <laughs> for the station fire. Thank you. Yeah, it's yes.
0: very upsetting though. It's, it's frustrating it's- and it's, it makes me very angry. I mean, nothing was learned from the Coconut Grove fire.
1: And what makes me angry too is that, I mean, I remember that fire vividly and I read mm-hmm. the Boston Globe and we did episode 72, but a lot of people aren't familiar And so if 48 Hours is going to present this big ultimate, here's what happened, they have an obligation, as the journalists they seem to believe they are, to present the facts. And somehow the Dedarians were allowed to go on that show and point fingers without getting asked really any tough questions are pinned down on things the show is almost and not really contradicts itself but it has the um, victims and it has people speaking out strongly about the Dedarian's responsibility but it doesn't really have any of the details that shows their responsibility and it allows them to continue to point fingers and it's, it's just disturbing to me because that whole reason that fire happened is by people not taking responsibility. Ignoring the rules. Right. The club was a kind of a side business for them. Maybe they thought it would be fun, but especially Jeffrey Dadarian, as a reporter who did articles on like consumer stuff and dangerous stuff and was doing a story about safety in venues, when they filmed at the club that night, seemed blissfully unaware of what a dangerous building that was. I mean, even in your own house, you're aware of, and you're not setting off pyrotechnics, you're (laughs) aware of things of fire hazards or should be. The building was an old wooden building. And so you would think people would say, let's not be shooting no shit. spears of fire around you know say no pyrotechnics
0: i know it's, and, it's ridiculous and in
1: the fact that they act like oh we're shocked you know it reminds me of casablanca we're shocked gambling's going on in this club we're shocked pyrotechnics are going on when they had when they were having them constantly right so you had pyrotechnics all the time and never told any, anybody not to have them so how can you sit there with a straight face it should
0: never be indoors, anyways. It's ridiculous. Right. It's but a the laser show or something. Come but, on.
1: But one of the issues is since the show misses so many points, uh-huh. it does nothing to to further the cause of keeping things like this from happening again. Exactly. You know, it's just disturbing to me. And yes, me so too. I'm disturbed. But anyway, so you have um, a recommendation.
0: I you? do. <laughs> I have two not NNWs mm-hmm. and then I've got an NN. So the two not NMWs are short. Okay. I just wanted to recommend it. I wanted to kind of an update NNW that I did a long time ago. I rewatched with mom because I thought mom would like it. One Mississippi, tignataro oh, yeah, and we yeah. watched it in like two nights. It's really it's two seasons. Half an, hour, short, right? half an hour, right? and they're short. short. It's like yeah. six episodes a season. Even watching it again, it's so good. I appreciated it even more, and Mom really liked it yeah. too. Yeah, so yeah. I still, I still think everybody should watch. I just love that. Show. I wish they had done another season or two of it. And Hannah even watched some oh, of it. Oh, did she us. like it? Yes, oh, she did. Well, that's good. I That's mean, there good. really isn't anything. What was, um, what service did you find that? On? It's on Amazon. It's okay. an original Amazon. Yeah. Okay. Okay, good. So I just wanted to, good, re- maybe I'll do that. Cause it's so good. Just rewatching it. You realize how good. And especially I still, I know I said it the first time, the guy that plays her stepfather Bill is so good. He's yeah. just so good at that it at is, his it's role.
1: Good. It's he, nice he, to watch a show that, that it's someone not- you yeah. It's, it, but it's not the run of the mill although there's a lot ha, that ha, yeah a laugh every
0: 30 seconds no, it's kind not, of, thing. and it's not at all and but it's just it's i can't i can't describe character. but yeah. no oh, good good and your so, second one my second one is well i was on netflix and i was looking for um something to watch for NNW. And I saw this one and I wasn't going to watch it because it wasn't really crime related as a picture of Natalie Portman on it. And I'm like, what's mm. that? I don't want to watch. And it's called this changes everything. And I started watching it and you need to watch it. It'll make you extremely (laughs) pissed off. It kind of reminds me of just what I need to be more pissed off. It kind of reminds me of that documentary or the book, The Good Girls Revolt. Mm. Um, It's similar to that, but it's about the movie and TV business, how women are frozen out. They're not given the same opportunities as men, not just in acting, but in directing. Gina Davis is the uh, person that produced executive produced it it's funny though the director is a man i noticed Mm. the talking heads in it are almost all women i didn't really notice that until alan alda shows up (laughs) you know suddenly there's a guy there and it's like what the fuck is he doing here but Gina Davis noticed that there wasn't any research done on actually how many, like how many women are stars of move, like how much dialogue do women have, you know, overall. So she had all this research done. She got like someone to do some kind of algorithm or something to figure it out. And it's really interesting. And it's very anger inducing about how little things have changed, how these women who, and it's the same old story everywhere men are running the show and they're like well you know we try to get women to do but nobody refers women to it Uh, you know bullshit like the reason it's called this changes everything is because Gina Davis mentions how every time there's some movie that's like Mm. all women and they're like Mm. "Like a league of a league of their own women are gonna rule the world blah blah you know because these movies always do well because women like movies that show a bunch of women and women are funny the only reason people think women aren't funny is because their standards are set by men. Right. And
1: it's only an hour and a half. And I just want to say on that topic, too, that it's a lot like what people say about race. Like, remember a few years ago, the Oscars, when mm-hmm. like. Um, Oscars so white. But, but before that, when. Oh, no, I can't Allie remember. Allie Barry won. A couple black people won, everybody's like, "Oh, this changes now! All black people are." And it's and I said to you at the time, "That was maybe 2016, 2000." 2000, I said at the time, was "No, next week, next year, it's going to be all white people again." It you know, this is because like, it's like, "Oh, we gave the black people." It's like Obama being president. So okay, we let the black guy do it. Now we can go back to.
0: And now we can go back funny to because um, they talked to a lot of actresses and directors and a lot of older women directors who were shut out. You know, and it reminded me of like I said, I think you'll I actually will identify with a lot of the mm, stuff I they will. talked about. And it's, it's just like, like the book publishing industry.
1: Well, it's just like the. Well, they were talking about
0: scripts, how many are written by, you know, and it just like with book
1: publishing. Somebody did a study, which I wish I, I could, that the huge majority of reviews, like I just talk about the mystery genre. Yeah. Most mystery novels, there are more female mystery, traditionally published mystery writers than men. The majority of reviews are about books written by men. I've heard over the years, like at the conferences I go to, you're better off just doing initials with the last name because your book's going to do better than if you have your name, although I fucking want my name on my book, because people will assume it's a guy who wrote it. Mm -hmm. In fact, the Boston Globe every Sunday has a column where they interview an author about what they're reading and what books are influencing. And I started and I, I finally had to stop doing this. Because it was making me so angry, I would count the author, like how many books they referenced as inspirations and what they were reading. And most male authors, it would be something like seven to three or nine to two or ten to two male writers to female writers. The women writers, it was generally about 50-50 rarely, if ever, were people talking more about female writers than male writers. And I think I, at one point, either emailed or tweeted at the woman who puts that column together and mentioned that. And she got defensive and said, well, the women all recommend men, women, and the men all recommend men. And I'm like, she doesn't get my point. She said she edits it and she cries to be fair. I was keeping track. It was like for almost two years. And it was so overwhelmingly male writers being promoted by other writers. I'm like, see, even the writers aren't getting it, although it was... Mostly I'm not saying it's only male writers they interview, but they interview more male writers That's than right. female. But also the amount of reviews are done by men, it's easier for men to get a book contract, yeah. a male, especially the mystery genre, because they want a guy writer because they'll sell more books. So I guess you can't make people want to read books written by women but it would be nice if people Well, did. the
0: point of this this documentary was that people actually do enjoy movies that have women stars and that have a cast that's mostly women women just can't produce them the other thing that i thought was interesting is there's some swedish woman that had this rating system Remind me of Amber's, um, Amber. Amber Knight. Yeah. Who inspired uh, the NNW. So her system was, if a movie has two women characters and they have a conversation, they're not talking about men, then it passes. Is she said, you'd be amazed at how many movies failed. When mm. women, when they're having a conversation, two women, and they all they discuss is a man. And these are scripts
1: so, that are largely written by men.
0: Yeah. And, and that man. men assume and that all we talk men.
1: about his and
0: and then like Meryl Streep was it was on and she was talking about Kramer versus Kramer and how it was a male-written movie. And granted, it was mainly about the husband. It but did they make wa-
1: the woman look awful.
0: It did. And she said they asked her what her opinion was about why would a woman leave her child. And she said she gave it to them, but they didn't really care. She thought because she said she had empathy. But anyways, you should watch it because you will, I will. So enjoy I can, it. And I yeah, say all women should watch more it. Even more angry. Well, maybe men should watch it. And like I said, yes, men should watch it. I initially, I was like, what is the, you know, what is this about? And then I read the blurb and I'm like, that might be interesting. So my NNW though is a different, it is a crime. Before you get to your NNW, can I just say, we
1: haven't mentioned this in a long time and you maybe think it by bringing her up. Our NNW rating system is inspired by. Amber Knight, yes, who used to have a podcast called Black Woman Watching,
0: Black Girl Watching, Black Girl Watching. I used to thank listen you. to it all the time, and it was great.
1: And right, she, and she doesn't, and she had her rating system, and she encouraged other people to also do their own rating system, exactly. and that's how we did our NNW. It stands yes. for Negative Nellies.
0: Watching. Because we're negative
1: because we're negative in our system we give something something starts out with 10 points and then it loses points for all the things maybe that we should add us. the. maybe we should have that women having conversation <laughs> thing to yeah, it and can i just say too because i can see you on zoom your new hairdo is just so cute thank you you'll get
0: to see it in person this weekend yes i will well maybe actually, i'll get one it. just like it you a look cute in it too i <laughs> and think, think I mom wear it. i think george cut mom and my hair very similarly and then i
1: can get glasses just like yours my glasses are from clothes. the dollar
0: store you do. well mine are like trifocals with and i'm scissors. doing my weight challenge and i haven't weighed myself since last wednesday so i'm gonna weigh myself mm-hmm. tomorrow morning and then i have to send my weight into tarsha who's who's doing the weight challenge okay i'm excited to see if i lost weight because last, last week wait. i lost half a pound maybe that'll inspire me but anyway so you're an nw yeah, so after watching that, I was like, well, I mean, I could do an NMW on it, but it's, yeah, whatever. And I wanted to watch something crimey, crime-ish. There's a, I think it's fairly new. I haven't seen it before called uh, Catching Killers. And at first I was like, eh, I don't want to watch it because the first episode is about the Green River. Oh, I thought of uh, watching colored. that and And I'm like, eh, might as well. Even if I don't like it, it isn't that long and I can do a negative negative. Nelly, you know negative Nellie's on it so I'm going to do it overall I did and I'm going to continue to watch the series but I just watched the first one and the start of the second one bad reenactments I'm taking half a point off Hmm. and they don't really have that many reenactments but they have a few and I don't think they're necessary and they're the kind that show just like a kind of a A blurry image an image of someone's you know turning the page of a book you know they don't show people's faces and stuff like that and they don't have acting but still I don't think it was necessary so I'm taking half a point and i didn't really take many points off of this so i figured you know nobody's perfect so i have to take something off um narrative cliches no there isn't a narrator which is a plus as we at least we think so it's mainly i'll get into the structure of it as i go down but no there's no narrative cliches Racial gender obtuses, no. Oh, well I'll say in the narrative cliches, there is some of that B roll stuff where people getting their microphones on and then like I'm so tired of that. Well, it's not that bad. And it I would say it's a positive thing on this because it Kind of gets you. There's basically three cops that they interview, and I'll talk about that later. But it kind of shows the what they show kind of shows their personality. So I like (laughs) this one woman, the woman cop that her phone goes off, and she's like, "Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute," and she goes and shuts it off. And I don't know. I thought it it was put to good use, so I'm not taking anything off of that. So again, racial, gender, obtuseness obtuseness. No, there are three cops that they talked to. One was, was a sheriff's, and I remember his name because it's the same name as somebody, a contractor I know, David Reichert, and he spells it the same way. He became sheriff later. He was like a sh- investigator for the sheriff's department, and there's a woman, black woman. She worked for sex crimes, but she would fill in on murder cases too, and another guy who was also a sheriff's deputy whose name was Tom something. So, I would say no, there wasn't really any obtuseness. They just talked to the people and and they were not obtuse about the victims, which were mainly sex workers. Lack of good visuals, no. There's a lot of archival footage of news conferences. There's some footage of news footage of them searching for bodies. But like I said, it's about the Green River killer in Washington state. If you a true crime follower, you've heard of him, Gary Ridgway. Well, I
1: just, in fact, every time I see that on netflix i think i just saw something about the green river killer on some show and is this going to be just like it which is one reason i'll get to that later
0: missing pieces not really they don't get into and i'll talk about it later in freshness but i didn't really think there were any missing pieces you could find out other stuff from other shows if you wanted inaccuracies and anachronisms no storytelling i think the storytelling was pretty good what they did was they talked to these three cops interviewed them and they also showed footage of them when they were younger. So it was basically them telling the story of what they did in the investigation. And then it was funny because they had this thing where they clicked through the years because it started in the early 80s. And then they caught him, I think, in the early 2000s. It was like 2003, maybe. Mm -hmm. And when they're clicking through the years, they show each year. And then they have like this voiceover of news news stories Mm-mm, from like that that's years. not a cliche well it's kind of a cliche but the way they do it is I thought it was interesting freshness yeah I'm gonna say it's fresh because I thought that the whoever interviewed the, the three cops did a really good job they were all very emotional all three of them seemed like very nice people and there wasn't any posturing and being dickheads like sometimes they are or like right. cop speak or anything like that I thought they were all empathetic. And all three of them, especially the two men, kept crying. Aww. The woman, I don't think, cried that much. Repetition? No, not really. They showed a couple pictures. Beating the drum? No. They could have about, Ooh, serial killer, blah, blah, blah. No, they Evil. basically- They basically told their stories about how they were involved in the investigation, each of the cops. And so I thought it was pretty interesting. It didn't focus that much on the crimes and the, and Gary Ridgeway, And it talked about the victims, but it was mainly the cops, how they investigated the crime. So I'm now on the next episode, I think is Eileen Warnick. Oh, so I think that's going to be kind of interesting too. Yeah. There might be a little beating the drum in that because people tend to, and it's so female series. So right. Really. I'll have to watch. We'll see. So yes, I gave it a 9.5 and I would recommend it. It's not like the greatest of all time, but it was enjoyable and I'm going to keep watching good, it. Good. That's good to know. I'll watch it as well. Good. And then we <laughs> can discuss. Yeah. And you read another Leanne Moriarty? Yeah, I was going to say. so. And um, I finished it too. And I was very happy that it didn't end the way it looked like it was going to I know, end. me too.
1: And I should oh, have... Oh, sorry.
0: That's a spoiler. Kind I of. should
1: be... Well, people don't know what you're thinking, how something's going oh, to You can say end. that
0: about all her books anyway. In
1: fact, I was going to bring it up. I read the book, Apples Never Fall. I should have been working on my own book and doing some of my money-making things. But I literally read it... <laughs> In one sitting, which is no small feat since it's 600 pages long. Yes, And long. I'm a slow reader. I may have started it one day, and then the next day I just read it straight on through. Wow. I liked it even better than Truly Madly Guilty. Oh, yes. I liked it for the same reasons we talked about last week. Empathy for characters. Yes. And also her way of structuring a story that has a large central question Yes. Is very well done. And I find
0: that's in all her books.
1: And while I'm not plagiarizing her, (laughs) I felt like even though I should have been working on my own book, I've always said, and I still feel this way, I learn more about writing from reading a bad book than reading a good book. But as I was reading this, I'm like, okay, if I'm not going to be working on my own book while I'm reading this, I have to consciously pay attention to what she's doing that makes this good. It actually helped me resolve some issues I was having oh. with my own book. You know, not to say I'm going to be Liam Mor- Moriarty. One of the things she just does so well is she makes you care about characters. She makes them all empathetic, yeah. even when they're different. And even if when they're not, even if they're doing bad things. Yes, exactly. And she doesn't go for the cliche solution she doesn't moralize or anything nothing not at all
0: i was just gonna say it's about a family uh, mainly there's four siblings and the relationships and i don't know anything about her personal life or how many siblings she has but i just felt that it was so well well done yes explaining the different the dynamic complexities and dynamics between between... the two brothers and the sisters and the it was so true to life And And even though we're nothing like that family. Because
1: there's different layers to ways people relate, and it's not this black and white kind of thing. And another thing she does well, and I I know I've mentioned this many times, is I, I get frustrated and don't really enjoy books where you can't like characters, where characters you like turn out to be fake and evil, uh-huh. where there's unreliable narrators. Uh-huh. I mean, every narrator is unreliable to some extent, really, but where you just feel like around every corner, you're going to get kicked and jabbed and disappointed. And in almost when you're reading her books, you kind of expect that because so many books do it yes. now. But then there are so many redeeming things and she doesn't do that to you. She's very fair to her readers and she cares about her readers and you can write a book, that's a domestic suspense or domestic thriller or whatever you want to call the genre that takes care of characters and has people who have redeeming values who don't let you down and they
0: always seem to be redemptive at the end yes that and, that's ending, not really and it's spoiler. not like a pat ending it's not like oh, right. it's right. not everything's lovely but right. like it's not like gone girl where right, it's like what right the fuck?
1: and I was gonna say why would you and, do and, that th- to me and, you know? and I was gonna say it's not a spoiler to you for you to say that about Leanne Moriarty's books because while they're redemptive it doesn't mean that necessarily the absolute best thing that you think is going to happen will happen. It's just it's not the cliche really bad thing necessarily. And
0: I want to say that I've read I don't know how many of her books but Big Little Lies and um the husband's secret are two other ones that and they all are the same kind of structure where something there's something you you don't usually know what is going on. So there's something going on that you know something's right. going on, and but, but even you don't know though what it but is. they're all different and they're all really satisfying. And I'm now reading an old 2010, and I can't remember the name of it. I bought. Of hers. The
1: husband's secret on Kindle. When I first got an iPad and got Kindle, I think, because it came out several years ago, right? Yeah. Even though I bought it on American Kindle and bought an American version, I got a Japanese language version. <laughs> and I just never bothered to resolve the issue. And um <laughs> But now I do, really do have to finish writing my book, and yeah. so I can't read any more. I can read bad books because they won't keep me. Are you going to finish it by Friday? I cry No, <laughs> no, I'm not. Let's I still see.
0: haven't figured out though how I'm going to shove your book into someone's hand, into a celebrity's hand. <laughs>
1: and there are no celebrities this year because I think they didn't know well, if they were going to have my live or not. Yeah. Yes. The guest is Hank Phillippe Ryan, who she actually, nice. like she, she's books. very nice woman, and she actually at an early crime bake when I was writing my first book, she did a critique, a manuscript critique, and I had been shredded the year before by another Massachusetts based writer whose name I I I won't go into, but um, hmm. Hank Phillippe Ryan was great, and she gave me some suggestions. I went back to my room. The, it was Friday night and at cry. Crime Bake on uh, Saturday afternoon. I spent Saturday afternoon rewriting my first paragraph, my first paragraph, my first chapter, <laughs> <laughs> because it kind of broke it open. And um, I can't even remember what she said now. And she said, you know, send it to me after you've redone it, you know, so I can, I thought, okay, she's just being nice. But I did send it to her. I think it was that Sunday night. And she responded within hours. Oh, that's nice. Telling me how great. She th- what a great job I did with writing and stuff. So she's a very, very nice lady. And yeah.
0: I read one of her books where the woman moved to... I might be getting it mixed up with someone else. Yeah, I read that one. It was a news one where she goes to an yeah. island. Yeah,
1: because yeah. Hank Phillippe, Ryan used to be... In... I think she probably still is on Channel 7 in Boston. Yeah. She was like a consumer reporter. And... But anyway, we I've should probably... It wrap, wrap it up because i'm be gonna up.
0: get up early for work yeah
1: i have it's to work. really
0: hard work it's nice not kitchens. working it's
1: nice not working for a living at some point probably the money over <laughs> what money it's not even like i had any money saved <laughs> i'd use my savings to get my car repaired for that oh. as you heard on the audio we played last week of tim uh, last episode oh, tim. Of tim coddle yeah. and next time it'll be your turn oh yeah. and you know what it's gonna be it's gonna be our fifth anniversary it was oh. crime-baked five years ago in 2016 that we that, and you'd been trying to get me to do a podcast but i've been like no because i have this job and i can't be saying like motherfucker and so-and-so's guilty of whatever but then i no longer had my job and yeah. the panel, the people from Crime Writers on, mm-hmm. had a panel, and I was even a guest on their yes, you're a guest on their podcast. And we decided, okay, let's do this. And our first one dropped Thanksgiving weekend of 2016.
0: Yes. Oh my goodness! The Yoga Twins, yum, Thanksgiving.
1: Yeah, I know. Now I'm hungry. I no. have this big frozen turkey have- in the freezer i have my weight
0: thing tomorrow so anyways
1: don't don't let me forget to bring the turkey um friday for to put in you guys's freezer so
0: certain people can whine about it for yes exactly why no so that you can because you said
1: you'd cook so that you yes i will cook it
0: i will instead of me cooking it
1: and bringing it down no
0: i will cook it no i'll put it in the freezer it's just that certain people are gonna bitch about it because he will he even bitched like there was a stray sock And I said, I I don't know whose sock this is. And mom asked Liz if it was her sock. And then Liz said it was, it was, but then she said it wasn't. I think it's Hannah's anyway. So the sock was sitting there and dad's like, are you going to mail this? Are we going to mail this to Liz? Where was it sitting? It was just on, I don't know, on the sideboard or something. It's like, it's this one sock. Who cares? It's not taking up any room. Yeah. And mom took it because I found another one like it. In the laundry, and it's not my sock. And I said, Hannah, are these your socks? And she said, No. So I, I don't
1: know, know how you stand the excitement and adventure of living in that house. <laughs>
0: it's a lot of fun. Well, have a good night. Yes. I will see you Friday. Friday going
1: to Friday.
0: <laughs> and okay. thanks for listening. Everybody. Thank you, everybody. Bye bye. Bye bye. The
1: lessons from that fire didn't seem to be learned well enough to prevent. Uh, there's my there's my pizza
0: and you know the thing that really kills me is facebook it started because a girl a girl rejected him and he was bitter about it that's why he started it figures
1: another issue are you are you listening to
0: me yes i am what are you doing see now i can see you i was just i was just doodling oh okay I am listening. Okay. Well, I'm eating
1: pizza now. What oh, exactly? I got, oh, I just got a notification. Brian Williams is leaving NBC News.
0: Where's he going? He's. I so don't funny. know because it was just a notification.
1: You like Brian Williams? Yeah. He Even makes after me he laugh. made that shit up. Okay, I anyway, I guess that. I should...
0: He's funny. Okay, I, I need to start again. Now I'm going to get in trouble because I like Brian Williams. No,
1: what, get in trouble Along with
0: Along with Dr. Phil and Nancy. All right, well,
1: we can only hope our listeners have been engaged. <laughs> Let me try to get through okay. this. Okay. <laughs> why are you laughing
0: because it's <laughs> i'm burping because i'm Diet no because somebody's scratching at the door and meowing cool mom <laughs> yeah. do you need to do something yeah just a second you eat, hey, I'll eat pizza. more pizza